Yeah. Hey, Tony, good to see you, mate. How are you? All is good. Good, good, good to hear it, mate. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Now, um, one thing I want to talk to you about today is obviously Eric and I did a video the other day on, on the response we had, a freedom of information response from the Care Quality Commission, which raised some interesting points. And you and I were involved in, in a, an issue a while back with, uh, I think it was the Youth Justice Board, wasn't it? It was. We were dealing with a secure children's home in which uh, some criticism had been levelled at the organisation for the use of certain skills which were considered to be either undignified or unsafe. Yeah. And you and I had to go in and we had to have a meeting. And, and what was interesting at the meeting was the absence of the, the inspector who actually had initially raised the concerns that that inspector didn't turn up and we had to speak to someone over the, the conference call sort of thing. But right. you know, they were saying that you know, it, it was just the, the fact that they, they took a technique, for example, the seated technique, and aligned it with the seated double embrace, which they said you can't use. They said the straight arm uh, hold was, was not allowed to be used. And there was other things as well they, they, they you know, subjectively said couldn't be used. And that put a lot of pressure on, the, on this particular service. But it's, in, it's endemic of exactly what Eric and I are finding now with, with other inspectorates, that they don't get any training. You know, so what's your, your take on that? You know, as a medical professional, you know, when you've got the people in positions of influence and in positions of authority, making these subjective opinions without any basis in fact. Well, I think my approach has always been uh, leave the politics to the politicians, but we have to deal with reality. And that's 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 where my uh, I start from. And I have assisted organisations over the years in looking at the medical safety of interventions. But before we can look at the medical safety of interventions, we need to go back to basic principles and ask ourselves, for the specific organisation that we're trying to help, what are the specific threats that staff face? What is their operational or clinical environment? And what are the skills that we need to give them to counter that threat? And there's a huge spectrum, broad spectrum of um, threats from elderly care or with dementia or are unlikely to pose a threat to life, but require some sort of support through to young autistic adults who may be six foot tall and weigh 15 stone and be full of testosterone and unable to control their behavior and everything in between so i think we need to start with, uh, uh, with basic principles of looking at the organization and working out what the challenges are for staff in managing um, behavior and keeping everybody safe that, that's where it starts um, and when you and I go into an organization, that usually is our starting point. What exactly is it we're trying to achieve? Recognizing that we can only teach staff a limited number of skills. But before we start dealing with skills, we need to look at the environment, we need to look at behavioral techniques and look at individualized care plans for each individual in their care to see if we can identify what prevents violence, what triggers violence, and what behavioral techniques will work on a certain individual. This is before we get to the physical skills. And then people like you come along, a training um, provider, training organization, training advisor to say, well, for the threats that you've identified, these, this is the skill package that we want to teach. And then um, I will work with you or another trainer and go through the skills and very often being trained in the skills myself or experiencing the skills myself to, myself to work out what are the risks what are the things that we need to do to mitigate risk in training and in operational delivery? And then we, we can talk about monitoring of the skills in practice and fine tuning as we go along. So for someone to come in um, 
often with a politically driven agenda, no to restraints, no to anything that causes pain, without understanding a little bit more about reorganisation, is uh, unhelpful. And whilst all of us in the industry, I would hope, um, do not wish to advocate the application of pain to anyone in anyone's care, we do recognise that sometimes at the extreme ends of violence, where someone's life is in immediate danger and everything else has failed, talking and guiding, and everything else that we want to do that looks nice, we need to recognise that in those extreme circumstances where somebody is likely to die if we don't do something now, then yes, I would advocate in those certain rare circumstances, pain compliance is probably the only thing we've got left to save a life. Extreme and rare, but we need to recognise that blanket bans are not helpful. Yeah, I think a point to bear in mind when you're commenting on this, you know, for people watching this, I'll clarify this. You're not just a medical expert, you know, qualified academic in your field that's just giving an opinion on this. <clears throat> I know way, way back when, when Pete Boatman was around, you know, you went through the whole training program with him, didn't you? Well, I, my only, my, yes, I'm a doctor. I'm a consultant in emergency medicine and I deal with trauma and violence as every, as part of my um, everyday job. Um, and as a young consultant, a very young consultant way back in the late nineties, for some peculiar reason, I was asked to comment on, I think it were it was pressure points used by one of the police forces that had gone wrong, and I did the job. And that afternoon, I got a phone call from the angriest man I've ever heard in my life, the late great Inspector Peter Boatman, and he said, "He said I don't know who you are." <laughs> he said, uh, "You what gives you the right to comment on the skills that my officers have to uh, deliver on the street?" What gives you the right to comment on the safety because you know nothing about the policing environment? And he issued me a challenge. He said, continue doing what you're doing in an uninformed way and I will shoot you down loudly in public and you'll never work for the police again. Or the other option is you take three weeks off work and come and spend it with me in the training environment and I will teach you a little bit about the use of force in the policing environment. And I was young and stupid and I did take those three weeks off work and I did go... Uh, and underwent training. At the end of three weeks, I had two certificates in my hand that said I was a police instructor in unarmed defensive tactics. And there was another another certificate which gave me instructor status in handcuffing batons and something else, uh, something to do with custody. I don't remember. It's a long time ago. And that, for the first time, introduced me to the world of uh, understanding an operational environment understanding the value of reporting and, and, and understanding the difficulties of um, training adult learners in skills that they don't want to use but they have to have anyway and that gave me a basis and from there having understood a little uh, about the policing environment and a little bit of military stuff that I have from my own personal background I, I, I was picked up by people like yourself and taken into the world of mental health and secure children's homes and I got exposure to a fairly broad spectrum of organizations in which use of force may be necessary and I, I have been through um, probably the vast majority of training programs that are out there I'm familiar so far with all the skills that come across my desk for review I've seen them before uh, sometimes there are nuances that can change but I do have 
a fairly broad grasp. From the medical perspective, I've never been operational in these environments, but from a medical perspective, I understand uh, the broad spectrum of, of, of challenges and, and risks that staff face. And from that, you and I have been able to assist organizations in, in understanding the threats, selecting the right skills, making sure they deliver properly in training, making sure they're monitored, and responding to, an, to any untoward outcomes. Yeah, and I think part of the thing that I, I enjoy working with you is that we go in and we've, we're an open book. We say, Look, tell us what the problem is. Let's find a solution for you. And as we've done with the, you know, recently with, with one organization, we've actually found a skills gap and we've, you know, identified that we've produced the skills for it on the spot. We videoed them, we photographed them, we did the risk assessments for them, we wrote them up, and then you do the medical review on them. And that was with the cooperation of the staff in the organization and the management teams. And I think that's a really important thing because when I started doing this, uh, there, there were training companies who had a set of skills and that was the only thing that you could actually deliver. So organizations had to make that fit in their environment as opposed to making, you know, the environment, the, the, the primary issue and all the things that go on the environment and then the skills become the secondary issue. So this is, you know, it's, it's a really good thing that you, you helped me do. And, and I think that that cooperation and, and, and that discussion and that work, you know, working with people allows the process to develop because what you start with isn't what you end up with. And with one organization we worked with for a long time, we started off at version one and within nine years we were on version 13. You know, so things change and adapt, and you were parts of the medical review of all that stuff. So I think that's that's an important issue that you can't have a rigid set of skills, and they're the only skills you can use. I, I don't think so anyway. I mean, what's what's your take on that? Well, uh, you're absolutely right. Years ago, when I started this, I was uh, amazed to see that um, in most, certainly in the health sector, mental health and acute health. Um, Managers recognize, yep, there's a risk to our staff and patients, and we need some physical skills. And they went shopping, and they went shopping to companies that had a training package, and they got the cheapest one or the guy with the nicest logo. It didn't really matter. And somebody would come along and teach them their syllabus, which may or may not be useful for staff in their working environment. And I, I make this point all the time, but there's no point teaching me personally an escape from a hair pull because I haven't got any hair that anyone can pull. So why waste my time and your time teaching me to do something that's never going to be operationally relevant? Teach me something and maybe a clothing grab, if that's what they do in that organization. Teach me how to escape from a clothing grab. Um, but you're right, and I, I think we have learned, I think the industry has matured, certainly in this country, and I do think we're ahead of the pack globally in, in the sector. We really are, because I've had some work um, coming from overseas. I can see how behind people are in their thinking and i think in the uk we are decades ahead in this industry in that we don't just deliver syllabus a to any organization that wants it because we're the cheapest and we've got the nicest logo and most charismatic sales manager we will come into an organization with a blank sheet of paper or an open book and we will ask you what is it we're trying to deal with who's your staff group What's their fitness levels? What's your pop what, what population are you managing? And what's happened in the last year that you feel uh, requires physical intervention? Let's, let's look at your reports. Let's look at your untoward outcomes. So when I go into an organization, um, it's often after you've been into the organization and given the training package or a trainer's been in there, and an organization will come to me and say, can you do a medical review 
we'll send you the manual. And I say, I'll do a medical review, but you'll send me the manual, but you can clear a day because I'm coming down to visit you. And I'll go down there. And before we start rolling around on mats on the floor, I will sit down and I will interview managers and trainers and staff, as you do, to get a feel what's happened last year, what happened to you, what were the challenges, what did you teach the guys last year, which bits of it worked well, which skills are still being used because they're good, which skills are staff not using because they don't work or they can't remember how to do it or it always goes wrong, and let's fine-tune it. And then once we've done that, um, I'll get them to take me through the syllabus um, to teach me the skill and to uh, make me the subject of a skill so I can understand from both perspectives what the risks are. And when we're doing these things, we look at the risks to staff and the minimal fitness levels for staff. Is it going to put their back out? Is it going to re result in you know damaged knees or damaged joints? Are they going to bang their head as they go down to the ground or whatever it might be? And then if we're looking at any work with physical work with the, the, the subject population, what are the peculiarities of that population in terms of their ability to understand what's going on or any physical um, vulnerabilities, Down syndrome, Prader-Willi syndrome, a brittle bone disease, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. There's a long list of medical conditions I'll be interested in, which will help me um, mitigate the risks posed by application of the physical skills that trainers are delivering. Yeah, and it, there's also very good economic reasons for doing this as well for the business because we've gone into organizations in the past where they've had, for example, and I'm just using this as a, as a hypothetical example, they have a five-day training course for staff on breakaway and restraint or PMBA, whatever you want to call it. And when we've done exactly what you've just described, we sit down with the managers and we sit down with the staff, we look at the incident reports, we can say, well, you actually don't need a large chunk of these skills. You can take those out because there's no evidence that there's any need for them to be there. And we've reduced training sometimes for staff from five days down to two days by giving them the things they need. And with one organization that we did this with, it actually saved them half a million pounds in six months. You know, so there's a direct and indirect cost saving for an organization. And nowadays, you know, every, everyone is, is concerned about budgets. Everyone's concerned about cost and training is always sometimes sadly the first thing to go or it goes to the cheapest option. Whereas if this is done properly, they can get the right training, you know, um, and save a hell of a lot of money as well. You know, it's, it's, I agree with you entirely, but there's, there's more savings than that because if you are delivering a good package for behavior management and violence reduction across an organization there is the unrecorded um, savings of uh, less complaints less litigation less staff days off sick because someone's been hurt less legal fees because you have to defend complaints coming in there's the, the sort of what i call the soft costs that if you get your training right and the monitoring of the the of interventions right and the medical review right you are almost certainly reducing huge costs downstream oh, absolutely yeah you know you're spot on with that uh, now, another question for you why why are some techniques still being taught that shouldn't be taught and one of them i'm gonna i'm gonna you, know, you and i just have discussions about this for years it's this thing called a basket hold or a wrap or call it what you like why is this still going on Okay, this is, this is not a black and white answer. 
because it's a bit like saying, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go off track a little, off tangent a little bit. It's a bit like saying all prone restraints is evil and must be banned. The end. It's a, it's a bit like saying that. I'm going to start by talking about prone restraint because let's look at the history of that. Prone restraint was has, has always been around, and prone restraint was associated uh, with deaths during restraint and some of those uh, prone restraints led to the death and they were ghastly and ugly and in that context and in the way that they were delivered were utterly wrong. Let's, let's start with that. That doesn't mean that there is no room whatsoever in the industry for prone restraints. Prone restraints, in my opinion, can be executed safely. Um, there are ways of doing it so that you're actually putting the subjects in a sort of modified recovery position which is what we advocate in, in the medical community for somebody who's really, really ill and not breathing properly, then we're going to put them in a recovery position until help arrives. And that's essentially what we're doing in some of the more enlightened prone restraints uh, approaches, which is fine. So, um, and if we're talking about prone restraint, yes, it, there is a role for it in certain circumstances and it, it can be delivered safely. If you get it wrong, it can go badly, badly, badly wrong, as we saw shockingly, uh, I use that word carefully, with the George Floyd, uh, George Floyd case uh, last week. Um, that was a prone restraint, so poorly executed, um, without care, with malice, that led to the death of a man who was utterly compliant and not resisted. So if we look at prone restraints, yeah, there is a threat if it's done uh, badly. Um, and we've seen these studies that say that, oh, if you're lying on your front, you, you, you're using less, you're breathing less effectively. Well, guess what? That's wrong. Because in the current COVID crisis, we're laying patients flat on their belly and giving them non-invasive ventilation because it helps them breathe better. So, you know, it's not a black and white. So if we start with the example of prone restraint, blanket ban, not clever. Um, selective use in certain situations, talk properly and monitor properly, yes. Um, so that's where, how I started my response to your very eloquent question. <laughs> and why are some skills being taught that other basketball? Not all seated embraces are dangerous. However, if we have uh, a, a young person who is physically exhausted, who is kept uh, immobile in a seated position and then we add on top of that a restriction of uh, efficiency of breathing by either pushing them forwards and flexing them to stop them, stop them hurting themselves and hurting us or if we pull their arms across their chest in both directions to reduce their uh, breathing efforts we're going to kill them. The example of that was Garrick Myatt which uh, I was involved with years ago and that was the situation. That does not mean that every seated restraint is bad and should be banned. It means that in, in a seated embrace, if we either cross the arms across the front and pull hard or lean or push the subject forwards to flex at the hips, we begin to endanger their lives. So again, anything that's politically driven, all seated embraces are bad or all prone restraints are bad or all pain compliance is bad. I can't agree with that. I can agree that there are things, these are things that we do not want to do. 
but there are times in certain organizations where it is the only reasonable thing that we can do but if we're going to do it let's for god's sake let's do it safely and let's teach staff to do it safely monitor it safely de-escalate at the earliest possible opportunity and recognize when things might be going wrong and de-escalate now so that's part of the medical input yeah i, I agree with you i mean my, my thing with the basket hole is it's 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 done the ones i see single person so you've got a you've got a lone working situation with one person trying to restrain someone then that adds another dimension onto that one there but no it, it's you know i agree with you you know all prone restraint isn't bad you know we, we use the modified recovery position as you well know because you've medically reviewed our stuff um and you can't say absolutely ban everything because it, there are circumstances that may warrant it as with pain compliance and I've, got, I've got to tell you a funny story here um a few years back i was called into a hospital because the manager had called the police in to arrest a member of staff you'll like this one so so uh, I, I went along and i said okay um I had a meeting with the management team and the police were actually there and the manager was absolutely indignant that the police wouldn't charge this member of staff with, with, with assault so i said well what, what happened she said well we had a member of staff working in a shower area uh, supervising one of our patients it's a sort of secure semi-secure area um, but this was a fairly new member of staff. Um, I wasn't aware of all the working principles. I'd only just done some very basic training. And the patient had delusions and at times believed they were a vampire. So the patient came out of the shower and attacked this member of staff and started clawing at his face. Obviously, the guy's shocked. The member of staff was absolutely shocked. Wasn't expecting that. Hadn't been given a brief about this stuff. And it, it was really, really bad. And, he, and all the stuff he'd been shown on his initial course wasn't working. So he, he kicked the patient in the shin and ex extracted himself from there. And staff came then and restrained it and put it, you know, sorted the thing out. He actually had to have re reconstructive surgery on, on, on his face. That was the interesting thing. But because he'd kicked the patient in, the, in those circumstances, the manager had said, we have a, you know, no pain, no harm to patient policy, called the police and the police came in. And the police were brilliant, actually, because they said, well, we'd have probably tased him. You know, we'd have, we'd have tasered the patient. The amount of harm he's done to that member of staff. So she was having an issue with the police. So I, I asked the question. I said, "What would you recommend then? If you if you're saying he can't do that, um, what would you recommend?" And I swear to you, this was the answer. She she said, "Well, he could have used a fire extinguisher." I said, "And done what with it?" She said, "Hit him over the head." Now here's a, <laughs> she actually issued a memo on my life. She issued a memo memo saying. In no yeah. way, shape, or form can staff do anything similar to a shin kick or, or use pain compliance techniques with patients. If they do, they'll, they'll be immediately suspended. But they can do anything consistent with the concept of reasonable force, i.e., and she put it in the memo, hit them over the head with a fire extinguisher. Man. Okay. Okay, interesting. Um, you've actually raised an important point. You and I can go into an organisation and deliver a syllabus. And occasionally something may come along that, your syllabus doesn't cover an unexpected situation but the skill ain't there because we didn't think of that situation arising or a new service user has come along and presented a brand new threat that we haven't considered or the organization hadn't considered so it's, from my perspective it's fairly, it's fairly easy um it's use of force is required but to make it legal it's got to be reasonable proportionate necessary and i know that you and other trainers labor that point in training that we're going to teach you these skills because these are the best skills that we've identified for your working environment something may come along that we can't cope with but this this is the principle of these are the principles of reasonable force 
and we you know, and staff were educated in that. And so in those circumstances, yes, if I hadn't got a, if I hadn't got a skill to hand because it wasn't this risk wasn't thought of, someone clawing my face off in a shower, and if I don't stop them, I will lose my face and probably die. Then sure, shin kick sounds entirely reasonable to me in those circumstances. Yeah, I actually put that question to Professor of Law Gary Slapper when he was alive, bless him. <clears throat> he was head of law for the Open University, and he, he, when I when I gave him the story as I've just given to you, he nearly fell off his chair laughing. He said that's absolutely ridiculous. But again, it comes back to understanding the principles of the law in relation to reasonable force, and that's why we we labour quite heavily on that aspect in our training. So in, in our manual of guidance that we issue, it actually states in there, this does not preclude staff from, from doing anything consistent with the concept of reasonable force, should they find themselves in an exceptional set of circumstances. And then what you do is you go back in and you review that to see whether that needs to be put, put into the manual or whether it was a one-off exceptional case that's not likely to happen again. So it, it's about you know, make, developing the system. Well, one of the, one of the things that I find useful um, for organisations is that having done the review, they will come back to me with something they hadn't thought of before. I mean, I think you and I worked on nasogastric feeding a while ago mm-hmm. because it was a situation that hadn't appeared in any manuals, but actually there's a need to do it uh, in certain organisations. So what's the best way of doing it safely, which which, which we, we dealt with. And uh, yesterday I did a, uh, a piece for an organisation on ligature removal. They had come across um, a couple of young persons in care whose uh, behavioural issue was ligatures. And I was asked, which ones are dangerous? Which ones can we leave? Which ones can we talk our way out of? Or which ones do we need to get in there right now uh, with a physical with physical control and remove the, 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 the ligature? And if we're going to remove it, what's the best way of doing it? So that was a, a legitimate medical question. And I spent all of yesterday working on that because it was a situation that I hadn't considered before. And it was a brand new one for the organisation, so we had to come up with a way of doing it. And that, that to me, it exemplifies the point that um, you know, we can't take a package off the shelf and say this is going to be great for your organisation. Because things will arise from time to time. And the staff were struggling with the ligature issue. Staff were struggling with nasogastric feeding. And we had to come up with a way of trying to deliver these uh, unpleasant things uh, safely and as humanely as possible yeah and i, I know the organization concerned because they, they contacted me and i, I said look we, we, you've got to get the risk assessment sorted on this as well you know because that will dictate what your processes and control measures are and that's when you know we, we got you involved with it because I, I knew you were the best man for the job um going back to the to the um george lord case uh, george floyd case you know one of the things and Dr. John Parks from Coventry University spoke about this at one of our conferences as well, is this um, breathing talking fallacy. You know, when people say, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And people think, well, if you're saying you can't breathe, you must be breathing. Because we had this with the Jimmy Mabenga case as well, didn't we? Yeah, exactly the same. Yeah, the, the, the George, I'll come to that point in a second. The George Floyd case um, concerns me on, on, on a much more profound level. And that is about the culture of policing. I've been exposed to a degree, um, to a limited degree, to American policing uh, through work on less lethal weapons and attending police conferences and so on and so forth. And I think the first thing we need to recognise is there's a a huge difference in culture. In this country, uh, policing is conducted through the uh, consent of the public. We consent to being policed. 
in America, police officers tend to uh, view every traffic stop or every person they speak to on the street or, or, or question as a threat to life. And they go into every situation expecting an escalation or the, or the, or the need to use less lethal or sometimes lethal force. And there's countless video clips of police officers walking up to a traffic stop with a hand over their holster, which has been unclipped, ready to draw their weapon and so on and so forth. Something utterly unthinkable um, in the UK. And I'm quite proud of the fact that um, UK policing is, is different in, in that respect. Um, so in relation to the George Floyd case, it's not just about the restraint issue, it's about the uh, callousness of what happened, nine minute restraint. And there's a man on the ground not fighting, saying, what do you want me to do? Um, I can't breathe, it hurts, my belly hurts, my neck hurts, I can't breathe. Um, there's no concern in their eyes. The, the police officer at the front is looking at the crowd, almost daring them to challenge what they're doing, almost daring them and looking for the next conflict. Whilst the guy, the officer with his knee on the neck, and we couldn't see his right knee, it might well have been on George Floyd's chest, further exacerbating the problem. Um, not interested. He's not interested in pleas of George Floyd who's dying. He's not interested in the pleas of the public. He's just doing it. And I think the most shocking part of that is he's lifeless for a good two and a half minutes and they roll his lifeless corpse onto his back when it's over and he's, he's dead by this point but during those last few minutes of his life he's pleading he's begging he's coherent he's saying i can't breathe he's asking them to get off he's asking them what what's you know what they want him to do because he's fully compliant he wants to uh, seemingly wants to do exactly what they say to to stop the discomfort so that that brings us to the point of your question this is about positional asphyxia. This is about um, a situation in which there is inadequate oxygen to go around and you die. Floyd's case is a bit more challenging, I'll come back to that. So in that situation, and this can occur in, a, in, a, in an individual who is oxygen depletes because he's had a struggle, been running away from the police or whatever, <laughs> And what he needs physiologically to recover is to breathe fast and breathe oxygen and replenish his oxygen on board. What we saw, and I think that video clip should be in every training package and every use of force man uh, package in the world. This is what this is what positional asphyxia looks like when you're killing someone during restraint. There's enough oxygen for him to cerebrate; his brain still working. There's enough air going in out of his lungs to resonate his vocal cords so he can talk but the overall picture is he's an oxygen deficit he feels it because he feels physiologically distressed he wants to get up he wants to breathe that's the physiological response but he's being prevented from doing so and so the thing about positional asphyxia is it takes place over minutes it doesn't take place it's not instantaneous it takes place over a long long time in some cases hours it was actually first described in chimney sweeps back in the 19th century. I don't know if you, if you knew that. No, I didn't know that. No. Um, they used to send uh, young adolescents or sometimes children up a chimney with a brush to, to clear up a clogged chimney back in the days of the Industrial Revolution. And a few of them didn't come out. And when they, when they did pull them out, they first began to recognise that they'd got stuck 
and they were able to talk to them for a while, then they weren't able to talk to them for a while, and they died because they couldn't fully inflate their chest. And that process took a long time. So that's the first time that we became aware of position asphyxia. It was subsequently described in people who had drunk themselves into a coma and fallen into a difficult position where they couldn't inflate their chest properly, but they were too drunk to get up and, and fix the problem. So and in all of these cases, position asphyxia is something that occurs over minutes, sometimes many minutes, sometimes hours of progressive reduction or continuing reduction in the ability continuing impairment in the ability to breathe adequately, which leads to a progressive oxygen deficit, which will eventually lead to death. The Floyd case is more complex. And I was disappointed to hear that the initial post-mortem um, said he hadn't died from strangulation. And I'm not saying he did die from strangulation. He probably died from a combination of things. And one of those things would have been positional asphyxia. But there's a misconception here that um, if you strangle someone, um, they die because you choke off their airway. Well, yes and no. There are at least three mechanisms of death through pressure to the neck. The first one is, yeah, closing off the airway so you can't breathe, and after a while, you'll run out of oxygen and you'll die. Number two, you'll choke off blood supply to the brain through pressure on the carotid arteries so the brain doesn't get perfused and you stop breathing and you die. The third mechanism is pressure over the vagus nerves, which sit either side of the carotid artery on both sides of the neck. Pressure on a vagus nerve is something that we use therapeutically, um, will slow down the heart rate. If you put pressure to both vagus nerves for a prolonged period of time, then you may slow the heart to such an extent that it actually stops. So there's at least three mechanisms on pressure to the neck that can cause, that can result in death. So saying there's no evidence of strangulation, therefore the cops didn't strangle him, is 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 a fallacy. And um, it's uh, I, I do hope that they'll find an appropriate medical expert to deal with that woman who comes to court, because that will be contested, I'm sure. But the case that you, you know, this case talks about, um, this is position asphyxia with some other factors. And my view is I would appeal to every trainer in the country, in the world, to include that video in their theoretical section, which deals with position asphyxia and the, the, and the risks associated with restraint. No, I totally agree with you. And one of the things that, that I've come across when I've, I've done cases, expert witness cases, and one, one case in particular <laughs> brings, yeah, springs to mind because I still hear it, not, not so frequently now, less common, but I still hear it. And that is when, say, for example, door supervisors restrain someone outside a venue, there's a, a belief that once they've restrained him, they have to hold that person there until the police arrive. And we had the death of David Irving at the, you know, the Saga Christmas party as a result of that, because when the police arrived, he, he was dead. You know, and I would say to people out there, I'm, I'm sure he all takes the same, is, is the minute that person you know, starts to show some signs of distress, they, that, that, they should be off the floor. You've got to, yeah, you disengage or you de-escalate immediately to a less restrictive skill. And again, this comes back to your point, which is so important. You don't just buy a physical interventions package. You buy a safety package, which includes physical intervention. Yeah. And that starts, and, and we, as part of the underpinning knowledge, when we talk about restraints, we need to talk about, in the same breath, we need to talk about de-escalation at the earliest opportunity. We don't hold them until the cops arrive. 
you hold them for as long as is necessary and the moment is no longer necessary you don't hold them you you de-escalate and that keeps it safe the moment there are signs of distress i can't breathe you get off and you de-escalate or you do something else and i like you have been involved in uh, countless um, expert witness um, uh, jobs where these things have come to coroner's court or come to court criminal civil and coroner's court um, about restraint and there's a there's a such a familiar pattern where somebody who is initially agitated is restrained is put into a ground pin is put into a poorly executed prone restraint is saying to his restrainers get off me i can't breathe um then he goes um a little bit floppy and they think oh it's just a ruse we need to lean into him harder because he's trying to lead us into a full sense of security and escape and then they describe a sudden final surge of energy as this, as the victim as the subject tries with all of his residual uh, power and strength to break free and just after that final surge of power they, they go lifeless and and, and 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 go into cardiac arrest and that's a pattern that i've seen and you've seen described so many times in these cases that's what it looks like and so we can learn from that when someone says i can't breathe he probably means it you need to do something about it if you don't want to kill him yeah no absolutely tony thanks ever so much mate it's been a pleasure talking to you all right buddy i'm sure we'll have some questions on this one so we might have to do a follow-up if that's all right with you with, with pleasure okay yeah. all right thanks mate bye